1-800-227-5738 now to make your tax-deductible contribution or pledge online at kpft.org. We need your pledge. You make a huge difference in this radio station when you pledge to KPFT. Again, that number is 713-526-KPFT. Call and make your tax-deductible contribution today. You can also pledge online at kpft.org. This is commercial-free, listener-sponsored Pacifica Radio. KPFT, Houston. liquid girl. I pressed my copper mouth against the thin of her eyelid, delicada, blink, green-veined, like folding cricket wings. In the echoing valley, you lay beside me, breasts, stones. I had forgotten Guatliquid girl. There lives the hum of mantis, the macaw in you, Five hundred years later, I remember. This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. You're tuning in to NP All Lit from beginning to end. Music, prose, poetry, muses, delight. This is Tony Diaz here for Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. Our stories our way all the time on 90.1 FM KPFT This is Gorilla Arms from My Name is Romero It was Sunday morning My father had just gotten off work Overtime shift Family room Pink box of donuts My father's blue work shirt That put them on the table Exhausted, but happy. Spending time with the family, his arms on the table, muscular, sweaty, heavy, hairy arms. A bratty, snotty-nosed child, I looked across the table and told him, you look like a gorilla. It wasn't just the words, it was the cock of the head, the wrinkling of the nose, the arch of the eyebrow. It wasn't just the words, it was the sneer tucked inside of them. You look like a gorilla. Who was this stranger who lived in my house, spent hours tinkering in the garage or lumbering out in the yard, yelled to rake up the leaves, pick up the dog poop, mow the lawn, left before I went to school, left in the middle of the night, sometimes returned the same, always wearing that blue or orange uniform, always tired, on those days prone to anger. Big, heavy work boots clonking and clomping throughout the house. Sometimes he was covered in dirt, his hair uncombed and wild. Work shirt unbuttoned, chest hair out, hairy arms like gorilla sleeves. Who was this stranger? He was my dad, my father. You look like a gorilla. It wasn't just the words, it was the inflection. It was my reflection. It was the teachers, the guest lecturers, the people on television, the parents of my friends. No one had ever told me that I should want to be like my father. Blue collar, work with your hands, muscular, sweaty, heavy, hairy arms. Their fields and embankments every day for us. You look like a gorilla. There was hate there, disgust there, dehumanization, like how creationists can find nothing more filthy than to say that humans are descended from monkeys, chimpanzees, like how racists call Mexicans cockroaches, cackle when they hear la cucaracha. The Nazis called the Jews rats. 
blacks were depicted for decades as more ape than homo sapien, my brother commented on how they used him at work. They treat me like their workhorse, a beast of burden. This was his first admission. This was racism. They treated him like a Mexican, and he hated it. My father was as stubborn as a bull, as strong as an ox, muscular, sweaty, heavy, hairy arms, gorilla arms, the arms that built our house, the arms that hugged my mother, that carried me as a child. I looked at those arms that Sunday morning and told him, you look like a gorilla. Everything stopped. Everyone was shocked. Soon there was shouting, screaming. I ran, crying, out of the house and into the backyard. You look like a gorilla. I will regret seeing that for the rest of my life. All right. So next up, open letter. All right. This poem is open letter to Donald Trump. Dear Donald Trump, in 2015, you announced your candidacy for president of the United States. In front of American flags, podium bearing your name, a platform of hate. Talked about making America great. For who? It wasn't for us. Latinx America. You called us criminals, drug dealers, and rapists. A nameless wave of people coming from Mexico and South America. Donald Trump, do you know anything heard of Central America? Thought to throw in a statistic like 7% of immigrants come to America from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras would say in the places we come from, the most basic of differences have alienated your supporters? Yes, the suburban racists, the hardcore hicks, to them, it's too much to say Latinx, Hispanic, or indigenous. To them, we're all Mexicans or we're all spicks. Donald Trump, you call us criminals. Maybe you forgot how the United States stole half of Mexico, how NASA stole much of what was left. Maybe you forgot about the theft of the lives of Torrios, Allende, and our friends. Maybe you forgot about the bombing of Panama and the United Fruit Company. You call us drug dealers, Trump. Maybe you forgot about Oliver North and his testimony about Iran-Contra forgot about the CIA's dealings in Nicaragua, about how they used freeway Rick Ross to flood crack cocaine into the ghetto. You call us rapists, Trump. Are you speaking for the women of Juarez, for the victims of American sex tourism? Do you deny that when she dared to question you, you said that Megyn Kelly must have been bleeding out of her you-know-what? Do you deny that you frequently made comments about wanting to have sex with your own daughter? Do you deny that you continually call women, all women, and not just Rosie O'Donnell, pigs? Some say you're a joke, Trump, but when you use a platform of hate to become the president of the United States, I'm not laughing because you've made it clear that there is a seething mass in the heart of this country that is deeply racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, queerphobic, misogynistic. You're no sideshow, Trump. You're the main stage, the old racism, the mean racism back in town. We need to fight you now or we may never get another chance. Some say you're a joke, Trump. But when you use a platform of hate to become the president of the United States, I'm not laughing because I know that when you say that we are criminals, drug dealers, and rapists, you mean business, and so do I. Donald Trump, you are fired. Donald Trump, you should have stayed bankrupt, should have had your ties stapled to the sewing machines and the sweatshop factories you produce your clothes in, should have had your casinos and tower collapse on top of your head. You should have suffered a stroke in your tanning bin and let the ultraviolet light slowly work its magic. Donald Trump, you should have had your hair caught in a freak accident and been swung around by it like a troll doll because Latinx America is the future America. People of color America is the future America. And we don't take kindly to being called criminals, drug dealers, or racists. We're the best of the best. 
the majority shareholders in 2044 or earlier, Donald Trump, you have said our hope isn't a hostile takeover. Mírala, no la toques, no puedes saber su nombre, que ella no baila con nombre, menos con lo que la joden. Mírala, no la toques, no puedes saber su nombre, que ella no baila con nombre, menos con lo que la joden. Ella baila sola, no quiere que la moleste, no es chica fácil, es muy raro que conteste, menos mal que se acueste con cualquiera que se apueste, déjala, déjala, que si divierta la vuelta, la vuelta no es una oferta, solo porque bella no significa que puedes estar con ella, no le falta nada, es super estrella, no quiere tu botella, vete y no deje huella, para que ella pueda gozar, mírala, no la toques. No puedes saber su nombre, que ella no baila con nombre, menos con lo que la joden. Mírala, no la toques, no puedes saber su nombre, que ella no baila con nombre, menos con lo que la joden. Mírala, mírala, pero no la toques, mírala, mírala, pero no la toques, mírala, mírala, pero no la toques, mírala, 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 pero no la toques. Descarado, veo que no te educaron, es claro que tu mamá no parece desde lejos. Mira que yo te aconsejo un espejo para que veas que estás feo, un reflejo de lo que tú tienes adentro, un hueco que no se llena con deseos. Mírala, no la toques, no puedes saber su nombre, que ella no baila por nombre, menos con lo que la jode. Mírala, no la toques, no puedes saber su nombre, que ella no baila con nombre, menos con lo que la jode. Mírala, mírala, pero no la toques, mírala, mírala, pero no la toques, mírala, 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 pero no la toques, mírala, 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 pero no la toques. A former farm worker on American hypocrisy. In the pandemic, illegal workers are now deemed essential by the federal government. By Alfredo Corchado, the Mexico border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. El Paso. The other day, armed with the face mask, I was rushing through the aisles of an organic supermarket, sizing up the produce, squeezing the oranges and tomatoes, when a memory hit me. Me, age six, stooping to peek the same fruits and vegetables in California San Joaquin Valley. I spent the spring weekends and scorching summer suns of my childhood in those fields under the watchful eyes of my parents. Once I was a teenager, I worked alongside them, my brothers and cousins too, essential links in the supply chain that kept America fed, but always a step away from derision, detention, and deportation. Today, hundreds of thousands of immigrants from Mexico and Central America are doing that work. By the department's agriculture's own estimates, about half the country's field hands, more than a million workers, are undocumented. Growers and labor contractors estimate that the real proportion is closer to 75%. Suddenly, in the face of coronavirus pandemic, these illegal workers have been deemed essential by the federal government. Tino, an undocumented worker from Oaxaca, Mexico, is holding this asparagus in the same farm where my family once worked. He picks tomatoes in the summers and melons in the fall, 
He told me his employers has given him a letter tucked inside his wallet next to a picture of his family, assuring any who asks that he is a critical to the supply chain. The letter was sanctioned by the Department of Homeland Security, the same agency that has spent 17 years trying to deport him. I don't feel this letter will stop La Migra from deporting me, Dino told me, but it makes me feel I may have a chance in this country, even though Americans may change their minds tomorrow. True to form, America still wants it both ways. It wants to be fed and it wants to demonize undocumented immigrants who make that happen. Recently, President Trump tweeted that he would temporarily suspend immigration into the United States, a threat consistent with the hit the immigrant La Capiñata policy he spearheaded in his 2016 campaign. Less than 24 hours later, the president backed down in the face of business groups, fearful of losing access to foreign labor, announcing that he would keep the guest worker program. In the past, the United States has rewarded immigrants, soldiers who fought our wars with a path to citizenship. Today, the fields, along with the meatpacking plants, the delivery trucks, and the grocery store shelves are our front lines and border security cannot be disconnected from food security. It's time to offer all essential workers a path to legalization. It might seem hard to imagine this happening during the build a wall presidency when Congress can barely agree on emergency stimulus measures. Many Republicans no longer support even DACA, the program that protected dreamers who grew up here and that could be revoked by the Supreme Court this week. But the pandemic scrambles are normal politics. We have started talking about essential workers as a category of superheroes. St. Andrew Silly, the president of the Nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute and author of Vanishing Frontiers. If the pandemic continues for a year or two, he said, we should think in a bold way about how do we deal with essential workers who have put their lives on the line for all of us, but who don't have legal documents. Maybe, he said, they should be in the pipeline for fast-track regularization, like those with DACA are for now. Of course, America has always been a fickle country. I learned that lesson as a crop-picking boy when Mayana Esperanza, who ran the team of farmhands that included my mom, brothers, and my cousins, would yell, Aganciarco, duck. The workers without documents would stop hoeing and scramble. Run, if not for their lives, then almost certainly for their livelihoods. We watched as the vans of the Border Patrol came to a screeching hoss, dust settling. The unlucky workers would make a beeline for the nearest ditch or canal. Some would even drop to the ground, hoping for refuge amid the rows of sugar beets, tomatoes, and cotton. Sometimes the agents would give chase. We would always root for the prey. On more than one occasion, agents took my mom and my Aunt Teresa, locking them up in the cages in the back of the van because they didn't have their green cards on them. We would race back home and fetch the cards and make a mad dash to the immigration offices in Fresno, some 60 miles away from our farm camp in Oroloma praying we would make it there before they could be deported. We were desperate to prove they had every right to be out in those desolate fields if they were taking a dream job away from somebody else. One time, Aunt Teresa looked genuinely disappointed at the sight of our smiling faces. She was ticked off she had not been deported. I miss Mexico, she said. Sometimes the night after such raids, puzzling thing would take place. A labor contractor or farmer would drive up 
as we gather for dinner of beef, green chili, and potato caldillo washed down with tortillas. He would compliment us for the hard work we had put in that hard day. And then he would ask, did we know anyone else who might want to come and work alongside of us? He meant more Mexicans. The instructions were simple. Get the word out. Spread the farmer's plea back in our hometowns in Mexico because plenty of rain had fallen that winter. And now it was summer and everything around us was ripe, aching for that human touch. The season looked promising, plenty of crops to pick. Today, not much has changed. The vulnerable, dreamers working in healthcare, hotel maids, dairy and poultry plant workers, waiters, cooks, and busboys in the $900 billion restaurant industry still work to feed their families while feeling disposable, deportable by an ungrateful nation. Dino, the farm worker in the San Joaquin Valley, is worried about the coronavirus. He wonders whether it's best after 17 years of hiding from immigration authorities to return to Oaxaca, where, he says, I'd rather die. But Dino's dreams outweighed his fears. He wants the best for his family, including a son born in the United States who's looking at colleges in California. So he continues in his $13.50 an hour job. He works from, among others, Joe L. Del Bosque of Del Bosque Farms, one of the largest melon, organic melon growers in the country. Mr. Del Bosque employs about 300 people on hundreds of acres, and its fruits and vegetables are sold in just about every organic supermarket across the country, including the place where I now shop in El Paso. Sadly, it's taking a pandemic for Americans to realize that the food in their grocery stores, on their tables, is courtesy of mostly Mexican workers, the majority of them without documents, Mr. Del Bosque told me. They're the most vulnerable of workers. They're not hiding behind the pandemic waiting for a stimulus check. Along with other farmers, he has been pleading with Congress for the past few years to legalize farm workers. If not as part of some comprehensive immigration reform, then as a bill focused on farm workers, because you need these workers today, tomorrow, and for a long time, he told me. With or without COVID, he added, we need to constantly replenish our workforce to ensure food supplies. Some Democratic lawmakers, including Representative Veronica Escobar of El Paso, are pushing to include legalization in any updated coronavirus package. The hypocrisy within America is that we want the fruits of their undocumented labor, but we want to give them nothing in return, she told me. Even with unemployment projected to be 15% or higher, Mr. Del Bosque told me he doubts he'll ever see a line of job-seeking Americans flocking to his fields. The rare few who show up at 5.30 a.m. don't come back. He said some give up the backbreaking work before their first lunch break. Del Bosque fears looming labor shortages. That's not because of raids by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement resuming or a wall keeping workers out. He worries about a potential coronavirus outbreaks. Yes, of course he does. But his most immediate concern is farm workers are aging. Their average age is 40. My old school, Oroloma Elementary School, which was once filled with Mexican children, closed down in 2010. The fields are simply running out of Mexicans as pure men and women migrate every year, either because they're finding better jobs in Mexico or because of demographics. The Mexican birth rate is down from 7.3 children per woman 
in the 1960s to 2.1 in 2018. Those who do come want higher paying jobs in other industries. The best way to guarantee food security in the future is to legalize the current workers in order to keep them here and to offer a pathway to legalization as the incentive for new agriculture workers to come. These people will be drawn not just from Mexico, but increasingly from Central and South America. Del Bosque Farms has been dependent on Mexican workers since Mr. Del Bosque's parents, who are also immigrants from Mexico, started hiring them in the 1950s under the Bracero program, which began during World War II. The program issued some 5 million contracts to Mexicans, inviting them to come to the United States as guest workers to help fill labor shortages so Americans could fight overseas. Hundreds of workers who've toiled at Del Bosque Farms over the years have become legal residents, many more citizens, including my father, Juan Pablo. For many years, my father spent the springs and summers working in the United States, but every November, he would hightail it back to his village in Mexico, San Luis de Cordero, Durango, where he played in a band called the Birds, Los Pajaritos, with his five brothers. He didn't trust his American bosses to raise his pay and always worry about the possibility of suddenly being deported so he wouldn't commit to them. The Texans, especially, he thought, were prejudiced against Mexicans. The boys from Mexico worked so hard. Texas Rangers argue during one of America's cyclical anti-immigrant periods that the hiring of Mexicans should not be considered a felony. Thus, the Texas Proviso was adopted in 1952, stating that employing unauthorized workers would not constitute harboring or concealing them. This helps explain why Americans call immigrants illegal, but not the businesses that hire them. When the Bracero program ended in 1964, amid accusations of mistreatment against Mexicans, my father thought he had enough of plowing rows on a tractor and digging ditches. He dreamed of running a grocery store in Mexico raising his kids out where mountains embraced us. But he was such a hard worker that his boss couldn't fathom the idea of losing him. So he helped my father get a green card for every member of his family, including me. Later, he began working for the Del Bosques. Without legalization, he would have left and probably never come back. As a six-year-old, I cried under the California stars, homesick for Mexico, for my friends, for my cousins. Then one night, my mother, Arlinda, tucked me into bed. And as she caressed my face, shh, she whispered, they're all here now. And she was right. Today, my siblings include a lawyer, an accountant, a truck driver, a delivery manager, a security guard, an educational fundraiser, and a prosthetic specialist. Cousins went off to fight wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, or to help run medical centers and corporations, including Walmart in Arkansas. Others still grind away in the fields of California and meatpacking plants of Colorado or they work in nursing homes or clean the houses of the rich. Many of us make an annual pilgrimage to our home village in San Luis de Cordero, surrounded by Mexican desert, but we are firmly planted here. Without being thanked for it, we are replenishing America.
four o'clock in the morning, and the full moon was shining through Berta's bedroom window. Her beloved Colonia Narvarte, which was usually a cacophony of sounds, the street sweepers, the knife sharpener's panpipe, the silver, almost church bell sound of the garbage truck, the barking street mutts of all shapes and sizes. Instead, it was eerily silent. Not even the birds she fed regularly were up. Berta got out of bed, and looked at the clothes she had laid out the night before. This would be the outfit she would travel in as she said goodbye to her birthplace. It had to be perfect and memorable. Berta wanted people to see her, just like when she went to parties. She wanted them to see the arrival of this new American. She wanted people to do a double-take when she walked by, and not because of the four children she would be bringing with her. In front of her lay a white satin button-down shirt and a black velvet skirt and the off-white lace petticoat slip that went underneath. She studied her pearl-drop earrings and opaque pearl choker. Then her eyes were drawn to the floor, where her pair of black patent leather slingbacks were at the ready. She smiled to herself. Berta, my mother, was not worried about leaving her country behind. For six months, she'd been preparing and processing— she knew my father, Raúl, was struggling to comprehend the enormity of his impending new American citizenship, something that he was required to commit to as part of his new job. But Berta knew Mexico would always be her home, no matter what. She would always have her green Mexican passport and an American green card. For her, there was no contradiction. After staring at her clothes in a daze, the moon now beginning to set, and the light blue of morning beginning to brighten over the volcano, El Popocatépetl, Berta realized she wasn't just smiling. She felt ecstatic. For a full month, the butterflies that were usually a sign of a baby kicking in her belly were now in her tummy because of the thrill of this upcoming adventure, and it was finally here. Still, a small part of her felt ashamed. She was having a hard time understanding exactly why she felt so happy about leaving everything she knew behind. Why was this so much easier for her than it had been for Raúl? Quiero ser más libre. No quiero que nadie me controle, ni mi mamá, ni mi papá, ni mis hermanos. Yo quiero ser yo. Amo a Raúl y él me ama como soy. Quiero ver el mundo y criar a mis hijos a ser independientes. Quiero ser una mujer entera. Y no sé si lo puedo lograr aquí en México. My mother said, I want to be freer. I don't want anyone to control me. Not my mother, my father, or my brothers and sisters. I want to be me. I love my husband, Raul, and he loves me as I am. I want to see the world and raise my children to be independent. I want to be a complete woman. And I don't know if I can do that here in Mexico. One by one, she woke up her children, starting with the oldest, Bertelena, who was about to turn seven. Berta helped her get dressed, all sleepy like a rag doll. But soon she perked up and assumed her role as her mother's helper. 
She combed her thick, jet-black hair and added a pink barrette. She pulled her white button-down sweater over the black dress Manuela, her abuelita, had made special for her just for this trip, and then she put on her frilly white socks and white leather shoes. My mom took care of me, dressing me in an off-white baby dress she had sewn with a delicate crochet hem she'd designed herself. I was a crawler, so Mom carried me everywhere that morning, as she did every day. Even as she supervised my two brothers and sister, she never let me go. Mommy called me her chicle, her gum, because I was always stuck to her. I was her little baby girl, the last one she would have, because, unlike my siblings, I was not planned or expected. There would be no more babies, so Berta doted on me. Every minute. With my brothers and sister, everything had been a bit utilitarian. But with me, she savored every moment. She wanted to raise me in slow motion, making every memory with her final baby last as long as possible. The Latino Vote Shaped Texas and the Nation by Tony Diaz, published in Que Onda magazine for Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. Did you feel the entire country's eyes on Texas during this 2020 presidential election? Get used to it. After years of being overlooked during the main event, Texas has become a major player in the presidential race because of the Latino vote. We need you to know that, remember that, and fight for that because people will try to take that away from us, but our impact is so big, they cannot. Of course, I'm typing this as the votes are still being counted. I'm writing this before the final results are confirmed to make a point, and because Scalenda Magazine wants to keep our community informed. Regardless of the outcome, the power of Latinos was felt. And just like you helped your family vote, you now have to defend our power. When you hear anyone say that Latinos do not vote, you have to set them straight. The mainstream media world doesn't even know what to call us. If you don't know what to call us, you don't know how to count us. Also, both political parties, all candidates, and the media industry has to work harder to reach us. As we proved through our Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month events, which you read about in these pages and heard about it on these airwaves, Latino art, culture, and talent is present in large numbers in every part of the city. Every Houston City Council District is Latino. I'm sure that's the case in all the other metropolitan areas. We must demand that our art, culture, and history be respected and that our concerns be addressed by every part of the city, the county, the state. As the winners are tabulated, every close race was influenced by the Latino vote and every blowout was fueled by our community. I'm very proud of our community for inspiring our family members, neighbors, friends to vote. So many Latinos voted early. Our youth made an impact. We have to build on that. We have to demand to be counted. We have to do it ourselves. We have to support each other. We must speak up. We have to start keeping track of Latino representation. By working with the Super 7 Latinas running as judges, we're able to reveal that Latinas are less than 8% of the 118 judges' seats in Harris County. Additionally, just a few years ago, there was only one Latina Democrat in that group, Judge Julia Maldonado. But no one was keeping track. We need to keep reports. We will add the number of Latino judges, and we will add the judge post appointed by the governor as well as by the mayor, and together we will see our representation increase. There are posts that don't get as much media attention, but which directly shape our lives. As Sheriff Ed Gonzalez said during our press conference for La Super Siete, it is more likely that you or your family will come into contact with a judge than with the President of the United States. These positions are vital to our community. The election winners continue to be tabulated. However, we are proud of our community. We must continue to unite. Our community concerns must be addressed during the upcoming race for governor in 2022 when incumbent Republican Governor Greg Abbott is up for election. 
Latino issues and concerns must be front and center during the primary races for that post and during the general election. We must continue to build our momentum as we unite to elect Houston's first Latino mayor for the Houston mayoral elections in November of 2023. And I have a feeling that the first mayor from our community will be a Latina. Our work towards that goal must accelerate. Unidos. from the short story, Hibiscus Tacos, by Irene Lara Silva. There had been centuries where I really missed having a body. I like this one. I've been in it for about 20 years. It's in its 50s now and still sorting what that means. Not old, not young. I have a senora face and senora hands. Not smooth, slightly wrinkled, a little lived in, but good. Still strong. Still enough energy for a good paranda, an all-night sing and dance and scream and fight and run. It's just that it's followed by one day of intense pain and then a few more days of lingering pain. But that's okay, because the body mostly forgets by the time the next party comes around. I'd never been in the body of a woman with tattoos before. All this gorgeous color down both arms, huge hibiscus blooms of red and yellow and peach, from both wrists to her shoulders, it was irresistible. I added more after a few years, vines twined around my ankles, swelling up my calves, bursting into bloom on my thighs and hips. I liked loose flowing clothing, but sleeveless tops and dresses reveal my arms, and shorts or dresses with high slits show off the color on my legs. 
took me a while to figure out how to shop for this body. I mean, yeah, when you're nothing but bones, you can wear whatever you want. Never have to worry if you're going to be able to zip that zipper or close that button. If this color or that one is better for your coloring, what shapes are more flattering? You just throw on a red or black cloak, and that's it. That's the signature look. It just took a few days for me to start changing Gloria's life. I didn't like what she'd made of it. I figured she didn't either, or she wouldn't have committed suicide at 32. I quit her. I sold her apartment. I told her family I never wanted to see them again. I left Dallas and bought a little house in East Austin. Gloria had some money, which always helps, even in my case. I tried painting. I tried poeting. I tried learning yoga and teaching it. I tried going back to school. Gloria had been an architect. I thought maybe I'd discover some of her drive and talent, but school wasn't for me. I had a lot of spare time. After all, I've been me for a long time. It doesn't take much to review all the petitions, prayers, and promises that come in every night. When you have power over space and time, life and death, well, it's nothing to say yes to this one or no to that one. I do what my gut tells me to do. I don't make lists. I don't do analysis. I don't do charts or spreadsheets or graphs. I just decide. I give or I don't. I take or I don't. But sometimes you don't want all your life to be about prayers and powers. I found my way when I realized I just wanted to do a good thing, to make a good thing. That I was happy shopping at the market and finding the ripest tomatoes, the best lettuce, the most fragrant cilantro, and the avocados just begging to be squeezed. It made my day so satisfying to make the best tacos I could make. To leave my customers happy and satisfied, feeling like my tacos had just loved them all the way from their mouths to their stomachs to the tips of their fingers and toes. So I bought a food truck, shown its silver, painted hibiscus blooms on all the sides, put up a sign with the logo I designed, a taco with a red and yellow hibiscus bloom inside it. Hibiscus tacos, tacos de Jamaica, surrounded in little lights. Found a good spot, set up a website, opened it up before the food truck craze hit its stride. I make a little of everything, all the classic stuff, carnitas and fajitas and shredded brisket and nopalitos. But what I'm famous for are my vegan tacos in Jamaica. I keep it simple. Three vegan fillings, nine meat fillings, Jamaica, nopalitos, spinach, mushroom, and calabaza cooked with tomatoes and onions. No flour tortillas at my place. All corn. White, yellow, blue. To make it look nice, I color coordinate the parchment paper on the baskets. White paper for the blue tortillas, red for the yellow, green for the white. No packaged tortillas either. They've got to be fresh. I found an old woman from Michoacan around the corner who didn't want to die yet. So I gave her a job making my tortillas, perfect handmade tortillas with her handprints and everything. She brought in her comadre who was dealing with breast cancer. Together they make 500 hot off the comadre tortillas for me on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And this is Austin. People here lose their minds when they see a menu that says gluten-free, vegan, organic free-range, or dairy-free. I can sell my tacos at $5 a pop. I'm open only three days from 5 p.m. until I sell out. Garrochata, limonada, and agua de jamaica, too. I've done a few things as satisfying as working with my hands, shaping order after order, and feeding people, watching them smile. They close their eyes after the first bite and pat their bellies in happiness. I've even got my regulars. There's Carlos and Roberto and Juanito who come by every night I'm open and either bring their work buddies or their new girlfriends. They endeared themselves to me after that first night. They showed up drunk and serenaded me with a surprisingly harmonious rendition of Malagueña Salerosa. Turned out they idolized those ponchos. I told them they should go for it as musicians. They get free tacos in exchange for playing live two hours every Saturday. Now they're all booked for birthdays and engagement parties and weddings. I'm working on getting a couple of nightclub owners who love my tacos to come by on a Saturday. Then there are all the Mexican laborers who come by and cry over the blue corn tortillas and the El Pastor and the Nopalitos. Anybody who cries over my food also ends up on my special discount program because there's nothing like tears to make you feel like you're doing holy work. And of course it was going to be Mexican food because that's been my favorite for as long as there have been Mexicans. And before that, the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Wicholes and the Otomi and so on. How could I help but love Mexicans? They love me best. Dress me in flowers and celebrate me and sing to me and pray to me like no one else does. I don't even have to be beautiful for them. Beautiful for them. 
They love me skeletal and they love me with sides. And even more, they understand me. They know I'll come for them one day. And when it's their turn, they're among the few that never run. I prefer to take everyone that way in a long, soft embrace. They call me Santissima. They call me Flaca. They call me La Pelona. Like if I was their mother, their lover, or their twitchy high school friend. Never quite right, but never excluded. Some of them still call me Mikandikuli and Mikatsihuatl and make me offerings. I didn't expect to come to love my little taco truck so much, or all the hours shopping, the hours cooking, the hours with customers, the hours of bookkeeping and cleaning and prepping. But I guess everyone needs a change of pace sometimes. It's been a while since I spent time in the body. Not since Kali. After the fall of Rome, we spent three centuries together, hopping from one body to another, man, woman, other, tripping over all the continents in turn. It was all made new because we were together. It'd been millennia since I'd been in love like that. Kali, well, I still don't know how to say that name without sighing. I, her hands, no one's ever had hands like Kali, hot as embers. I always marveled at waking without scorch marks on my skin. It didn't matter what kind of body she was in. When she danced, no one else existed. I'll never forget what it felt like when she held me and how she could rage, her eyes flashing, her voice all growl and thunder. I've never had much of a temper, but she would push and push me until I was throwing things against walls and screaming at her to get out. And then one day she left. Years and years later, when we saw each other again, it was as if we had never been. Fourteen centuries alone convinced me that solitude was my way. And for fourteen centuries, I didn't even want a body. Didn't want to miss the warmth of a body. Didn't want to adore the tilt of a head or a crooked smile or a sigh behind my ear. So when I became Gloria, I vowed I'd drink my fill of pleasure, taking lover after lover but leaving my heart out of it. After so many years alone, I wasn't sure I could feel anything anyway. That resolution didn't last very long. I could feel Gloria's heart beating away in my chest, thumping and clamoring and clanging. She'd never been adored. And in her whole life, her heart had never split itself open for someone else. And so what could I do when it drummed its knee day and night? All right, I said. I'll find some mortals to love, but only mortals. And I'll love them the way mortals can be loved. Partial loves. Fractional loves. Because they burn out so quickly. Because in a century or two, I'll barely remember their names. Because they'll love me incompletely, too. They'll never know who I am. They'll just remember me as Gloria, a woman with a painted body, who was perhaps a little secretive, but who loved like a firecracker, bright enough to light up the sky while it lasted. I could do that, I thought. I could live that way. Siendo 
brazos Siempre me pregunto yo Cuánto me debía el destino que contigo me pagó Por eso es que ya mi vida Toda te la entrego a ti Listener contributions play an extremely important role in the quality of the music and news you hear on this station. If you've never made a contribution to KPFT, we need to hear from you. With the threat of reduced federal funding for public radio, first-time contributors are more important now than ever. Call 713-526-5738 now to make your tax-deductible contribution or pledge online at kpft.org. We need your pledge. You make a huge difference in this radio station when you pledge to KPFT. Again, that number is 713 713- 526 KPFT. Call and make your tax deductible contribution today. You can also pledge online at kpft.org. This is commercial free, listener sponsored Pacifica Radio. KPFT Houston. Yeah. 